Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to a new series of Talking France, a weekly podcast by the team at The Local France. It's good to be back, and as usual this week, we will be talking about the main news in France and also digging into some interesting subjects that really help explain the country and its culture to you, our listeners. Up first, we'll bring you the main talking points from the week, including a look at the new president of the French far right. He's only 27 years old. Also, will there be Christmas lights in French cities and towns this year? And why is Miss France being sued? We'll also bring you up to date on France's new immigration bill, including a plan to introduce French language tests for certain residency permits. Should foreign residents in France be nervous about this? We'll also explore what a planned new passport checking system due to be rolled out in France and across the EU next year will mean for anyone travelling to the country. I'm Ben McPartland and joining me this week will be the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield and our political expert, John Litchfield. Jen, Emma, it's good to have you back. It's been a couple of weeks since we produced this podcast. What have you been up to, Emma? Well, I've been here running the local while you two have been gallivanting off somewhere. So uh, I've got nowhere exciting. But I am going to Marseille next week, which I'm very excited about. Ah, I was just down there, actually, while I was gallivanting away during the school holidays. It's really nice, beautiful. I did a little tour of the south. I didn't really go to plan, actually. We went to Cassis, where we got hit by really expensive prices in the restaurants. It's a bit chic down there. We went to Le Capte, near Toulon. Do you know it? Yes. Got savaged by mosquitoes. And then we went to La Ciota, which is a beautiful place, but I got tasered in the face by a jellyfish <laughs> while I was swimming quite far from the beach. Bit of a panic. Really blooming painful. I don't know if you've ever been stung by jellyfish down in the <laughs> south. There is lots of them. Loads of them, actually. They've been, because it's so warm, the Mediterranean, the locals were telling me how it's become hard to swim down there. But as I was kind of writhing in pain, two elderly women climbed out the sea covered in stings. And they were just like, well, c'est la vie, c'est la vie, ça fait du bien, you know, it's life, it'll do you good. And I'm like, whoa, oh my God, what are you talking about? And anyway, some some other guy told me to rub sand in my face. But I, did, I wasn't sure whether he was joking. But anyway, I survived. Jen, where did you go jig gallivanting? I went gallivanting back in the US. Oh, how was the trip? <laughs> it was really nice. Uh, it was really good to go home and see the authentic fall leaves. I will say that there was a pretty long wait at Charles de Gaulle when I was leaving. It was probably about three hours uh, total at the airport. So that was a pretty long um, journey in total. So I would definitely recommend if you're flying these days to get there a bit early. Um, coming back was easy, though. Honestly, going through customs was was mm. quite smooth. Interesting. Yeah, we do have lots of listeners in the United States and in France who will maybe making that trip this Christmas. So some good advice for them. Right, guys, we should get on with the news and move on to our talking points this week in France. Now, for the first time since France's far-right party, originally the Front National, now the Rassemblement 
Mont National was created in 1972, it will not be led by someone named Le Pen because it has a new leader with Marine Le Pen stepping down. Emma, tell us about this new leader of the French far-right party. Yes, his name is Jordan Bardella. Um, we should probably say that this doesn't mean that Marine Le Pen is leaving politics. She's still an MP, she still leads the far-right bloc in Parliament, and although it's very early days, it's still her name that's being talked about as a presidential candidate for 2027, so she's still here. But Bardella was last week elected president of Rassemblement National, the far-right party, and as you say, it's the first time since 1972 that its leader hasn't been a Le Pen, either Marine or her father Jean-Marie Le Pen. Although Badela, he is in fact the partner of Marine's niece, so I guess it's kind of still in the family, but he's not a Le Pen. And he's quite an interesting character, actually. The first thing that everyone always says about him is that he's young, he's only 27, and he's pretty much been Marine Le Pen's right-hand man since he was in his early 20s, so he's a bit of a political prodigy, I think. Where's he from? He's from Drancy, which is a sort of low-income suburb of Paris, and he grew up in a cité, which is, you know, like a, a social housing project. Very much a contrast to Le Pen, who, you know, she likes to style herself as the woman of the people anti-elite, but she actually was raised in luxury in one of the most expensive suburbs in Paris. The two of them, they actually grew up about 15 kilometres apart, but they're honestly worlds apart in terms of how those different suburbs are. And within the party, he's developing a reputation very much as a hardliner, which, again, is a big contrast to Le Pen's recent style, which has all been about softening the party, softening the image, softening the anti-immigration rhetoric. She even went so far as to expel her father, Jean-Marie, who is a very outspoken anti-Semite and Holocaust denier. Now, in June's parliamentary elections, the Rassemblement National far-right scored 89 MPs, which was a huge shock at the time. What have they been doing since these 89 MPs? Well, they've actually been keeping quite a low profile. As you say, it was the, the best result ever. They're now the third largest bloc in Parliament after Macron's centrist bloc and this alliance of the leftist parties. And Le Pen herself has been very concerned about sort of keeping the party respectable. So, like, after the election, she was sending out memos saying everybody has to wear ties, or male MPs have to wear ties. So, you know, it's all about the, the image of the party and she kind of wants to create this image as a, a respectable parliamentary party and opposition leader. This project respectability, I think it's fair to say, suffered a bit of a setback last week after one of her MPs was suspended from Parliament for yelling, go back to Africa, while a black MP was speaking. He actually said, qu'il return en Afrique, and that can mean either they should go back to Africa, because il, I-L-S in French means they, or it can mean he should go back to Africa, because il, I-L in French means he. So we weren't entirely clear whether he was shouting this about the migrants that were the result of the parliamentary question, or about the black MP himself. But either way, it's dealt a blow to her project for being a respectable party. Exactly. We can argue about the French grammar or what exactly he said, but it was pretty embarrassing for Le Pen. Absolutely, yes. Uh, her project of respectability has been quite important to her. And sort of to that end, you know, the, the party has also been changing the way it behaves. So the party even abstained from a couple of votes to allow the Macron government to pass some important legislation like the, the financial financial aid package. And again, that's part of the project of being sort of respectable opposition. But in recent weeks, they've joined in on sort of blocking a lot of parliamentary projects. They were involved in blocking the budget which from passing through Parliament, which meant that the government had to use their emergency powers. And they've also been joining in voting on measures of no confidence in the government. So they've got a bit more prominent in the last few weeks. Now, someone who can shed a bit more light on the French far right, Jordan Bardella, and what's going to happen in the future is, of course, John Litchfield, our politics expert who joins us now on the line from Normandy. John, we've been talking about Jordan Bardella 
being the new president of the Rassemblement National. What does this mean for the far-right party in France? Well, it's an extraordinary choice, if you like. I mean, he's 27 years old. He joined the party at 17. He's only been in the party 10 years. He's never been the leader of a major, and you have to say, the Rassemblement National now is a major political party in France, as anywhere near as young as that. He is very assured. He's very good-looking, sort of boys' man looks in a way. He's no fool, but it's suggested by people I've spoken to that there isn't a great deal beyond that surface, except a much more, finally, a much more ultra-nationalist, much more identitarian, not to say racist approach than is consistent with uh, what Marine Le Pen has been saying she's trying to do with the party in the last 10 or so years. So it'd be interesting to see, A, whether he is just someone who's like a kind of prime minister to her president. It's largely this about her laziness, quite frankly. She doesn't like running the party. The party's in a mess. She needed someone to do all that grunt work while she sort of flaunted herself as the leader of the parliamentary party, which is now a big party, and prepared for the election in 2027. There's no question that she will be the candidate in 2027 unless something comes along to prevent it. It's not certain that Bardella would be the candidate if, if something prevented her. So in a sense, he is a kind of glorified number two, but he's already caused a lot of trouble within the party by firing from the national executive two very senior members in the north, including the mayor of the town, Enan uh, Beaumont, where, where Marine Le Pen is the, is the local MP or, or deputy. So there is going to be, I think, something of a strategic, not to say ideological debate, argument, row within the party uh, if he pushes things the way he wants to push them. How far that will go is not clear. John, just in terms of the parliamentary party, they've got 89 seats, the Rassemblement National. You know, Marine Le Pen has wanted to turn them into a kind of serious political force. How has it turned out since the June elections? Well, that's what was interesting, I think, about this incident with Greg Wilder Fournas, the MP who's been suspended. Until then, they have been deliberately, very self-consciously trying to appear quiet, respectable, hardworking, uh, so as to make the contrast with the, some of the left-wing deputies who spend the whole time, it seems to me, standing on their feet and shouting and screaming, and, and that's a deliberate choice on their part. But she especially wanted to make the party, her new big parliamentary party, seem a serious, hardworking party, try and pull a trick of being like a serious party, but not like the other parties at the same time, in the hope of, of suggesting we are a, a party of government in waiting. We are the alternative to Macron, no one else is. So she's been playing it quite well there. But then suddenly, as is often the case with the full national, now there are some women that's now, the veneer of respectability cracks and you see behind that what the party really is and does show what you're really dealing with with the Rassemblement National still, despite all the alleged de-demonization and respectabilization that's gone on in the Marine Le Pen years. Indeed. John, just briefly, 2027 feels a long way away, but the far right, do they have a good chance of winning power in 2027? No. You know, you, you see polls, as you did last time, showing them going up in the polls during between times. But when it comes to it, I think there's not a 50% of French people who are willing to vote for the Rassemblement National. And you have to remember that Macron won't be there next time. So the anti-Macron vote will not be uh, strong in her favour next time. There will be Obviously, there'll be a candidate of the left, a candidate of the centre-right. There'll be a candidate that'll be probably Marine Le Pen. She may well get in the second round again. But there will be a new face as the candidate of the kind of centre-European, pro-European centre-ground, possibly Edouard Philippe, the former prime minister, possibly Bruno Le Maire. And I think they would easily defeat Marine Le Pen. 
Right, now, last year it was won by Ile de France. The year before that, Normandy was the winner. And the year before that, Guadeloupe. It's one of the most watched competitions in the country. I'm not talking about sports, not rugby or football. It is, of course, guys, Miss France. It's that time of year again, because in a few weeks' time, a new Miss France will be crowned. But we're not really here to talk about who that might be, because there's a more interesting story than that, because the contest is being taken to court. Jen, before you explain why Miss France is being sued, just explain to listeners a bit about what this competition means for France, because, look, I just don't get it. Yeah, so Miss France is actually very popular in France. Uh, the contest itself is over 100 years old, and in 1920, when it was created, it was actually called La Plus Belle Femme de France, or The Prettiest Woman in France. And the rules used to state that no woman over 24 could compete, so you had to be between the ages of 18 to 24. You had to be single and childless. Um, now, these two requirements have been done away with, but still, in order to compete, you have to be at least a meter 70 in height. You cannot have had any cosmetic surgery or gotten any tattoos, and you must engage in what the competition considers moral behavior, so that means not drinking or smoking in public and not ever having been photographed nude. These days, a lot of French people that you talk to will probably tell you that they find the competition to be a bit outdated. That being said, every year, the final is screened on primetime TV, and there are still over 8.6 million people watching the Miss France competition. So it's a lot of people that are tuning in, and you could still say that it's quite a cultural staple in France. Indeed, 8.6 million French people tuning into what's essentially a beauty contest. But basically, the competition is being taken to court, Jen. Explain why. Yes, so there's a feminist group, it's called Ose le Feminisme, and they are the ones that are taking Miss France to court. But it's not just any court, actually, it's the labor court, and the case is focused on employment law. So basically, the way that they're tackling this is via the French labor law, which allows for several qualities that employers cannot use to discriminate against people. So you cannot discriminate against people based on age, physical appearance, pregnancy, and morals. And these rules against discrimination are also enshrined in the penal code. So Ose le Feminisme says that Miss France candidates should be classified as employees rather than volunteers, and in which case it would be illegal for their employer or the contest organizers to discriminate based on their physical appearance or their quote-unquote morals. So basically, if an employer is found guilty of discrimination, they can be punished by up to three years in prison or they can incur a 45,000 euro fine. Right, now French labour laws are not to be messed with at all, but we await the verdict in this battle, which will come later in November. It could throw a huge spanner in the works of the annual pageant. Emma, do you watch Miss France? Uh, I don't, no. But I do quite like playing the Miss France quiz because did you know that as well as being tall, beautiful and looking good in a swimsuit, Miss France candidates also have to answer questions about the history, the geography and the politics of France. Come on then, let's see if I could be in Miss France. Well, we already know that you look great in a swimsuit, Ben, but Jen and I have brought on a few questions just to see if if you would qualify. So, Ben, there are six women who have been given France's highest posthumous honour and have been inducted into the Pantheon in Paris. Can you name me two of them? Oh, God, guys, come on. You're really going to embarrass me now. Simone Simone Le Beauvoir. No, there is a Simone. Oh, God. I'll give you half a point for that. Right, Okay. Um, There was the lass who got... Uh, no, you've got me. Okay, come on, fire away. <laughs> there are six. There is Josephine Baker. That's the one I meant recently, yeah. <laughs> yes, cabaret dancer, born American, but Pontionise for her work for the French Resistance. Yeah. The Simone uh, was Simone Val. Uh, she's a of Holocaust course. survivor, French MP, the woman who was instrumental in legalising abortion in France. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've got uh, Germaine Tillon and Geneviève de Gaulle Antonio, who were uh, high profile members of the French Resistance. Right. We have Marie Curie. Um, of course. 
discover a radium. And the final one is a bit obscure. Uh, we have a lady called Sophie Bertelow, who, as far as we oh, know, yeah. didn't actually do anything that amazing, but she was married to a very distinguished chemist called Massana Bertelow. He was put in the Pantheon and he refused to be parted from her. So she's in there as his wife. Right, I failed miserably on that. Any yeah, easier did. questions? Okay, here's an easier one. Can you name the longest river in France? Yeah, it's got to be the... Rhone. No, that's what I thought too. It's the Loire. Right, okay. All right, you want to try one last, last one? Last one, come on. Okay. Which French actor, so not a woman, a man, which French actor has won an Oscar? There's only one. Yeah, I know this. It's the guy who was in the silent movie and he's called Jean Du something. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's Jean, Jean Du Jardin. Yes! Yeah. Yeah. Well done, yes! <laughs> Fantastic. Now, we do have an article on the site, don't we? The local.fr featuring this quiz, Miss France quiz. Yeah, we have 19 questions from the Miss France quiz, so it's fun. Go Brilliant. That. We will put that up back on the site so listeners can try their hand at the questions and no doubt do far better than me. Right, moving on. Now, one subject we've talked about a lot recently is energy sobriety and the need to cut down on energy this year. But what does it mean for Christmas lights and particularly places that really light up in the winter? Champs-Élysées in Paris and notably Lyon, which has a famous light festival. Jen, what's going on? Yeah, so both of those places are going to continue being lit up this year, so you don't have to worry. France is not going to be in the dark. Every year, actually, the Champs-Élysées has four full kilometers of lights, and they use over 20,000 bulbs to light up the street. So you would think that that would probably use a lot of energy, but actually, because these are LED light bulbs, it doesn't use so much. But a lot of people have been wondering whether France is still going to go ahead with a lot of these traditional light displays, considering that the government is asking people and households to cut back on their energy usage. And like I said, Yes, the lights are going to be switched on, um, but there are going to be some changes. So as for the Champs-Élysées, they're going to start on November 20th. And the modifications are that they're going to be switched off a bit earlier than usual, so at 11.45 each night, and that the display is only going to run for six weeks instead of seven. Okay, now interestingly enough, Christmas lights don't actually use that much electricity, do they? And are there any French cities that are actually really looking to limit their displays this year? Yes, so, and it's more of a good faith measure uh, rather than for energy saving, like we mentioned. So the LED lights, they're really only bringing up the bills by about 50 to 60 euro a day for the Champs-Élysées. But let's take Strasbourg, for example. So they're going to end the display a week earlier than usual, and then they're going to try to decrease their light bulb usage. So they'll use about 10 to 20% less bulbs. Um, and then Bordeaux is another example. So they're going to end their display an extra two weeks ahead of the usual end time. And then some towns like Ken in Normandy, they're just going to shut the lights off earlier in the night. So at 11 p.m. instead of midnight. Right. So it really does depend on the town. Thanks, Jen. That's a great update on Christmas lights this year. Immigration is a sensitive issue in France, as in most countries, and it's a particularly tricky one for President Emmanuel Macron and his government. Since his re-election in the spring, there has been much talk of the government introducing new immigration laws, and details of what they will entail finally emerged recently when France's Interior Minister, Gérald Darmanin, and Labour Minister, Olivier Dussopt, gave a joint newspaper interview outlining their plans. Emma, tell us a bit about what Mr Darmanin has planned. Is there any reason for us as immigrants to be nervous? Well, it's early days, so we don't have like a, a draft text or anything. It's really just what these two guys said in their newspaper interview. But it seems like there's going to be three main planks. The first one is improving the enforcement of what they call OQTF notices. This is the Obligation de quitter le territoire français. Um, 
get out, basically. They're issued to people who've either committed immigration offences like overstaying or whose application to renew a visa or a residency card has been denied. At the moment, a lot of them are issued and not many of them are enforced. There's also the introduction of a special residency permit for certain industries that are having difficulty finding staff like construction, hospitality, home helps. From what we know, it seems that this will mostly be for people who are already in France and are working illegally. They're known as sans-papiers, people without papers. And it seems like they'll be able to get a residency permit if they agree to work in one of these under-pressure industries. The government says that it's not an amnesty for illegal workers, but it kind of is, really. And the third thing, which is of most interest to people like you and me and Jen, is compulsory language exams for foreigners in France in order to get residency cards. At the moment, it's only citizenship that actually has a formal language requirement. If you want to be a French citizen, you'd have to take four exams, show you certificates when you apply. But for residency, there isn't really an exam that you have to take. We've been sort of pushing the Interior Ministry quite hard for details on this, but they seem pretty vague at this stage, particularly about like what type of exam you have to take and what level of French you need. Pretty crucial detail there. But one thing we do know is that this is for the carte de séjour pluriannuel, which is the long-term multi-year card that you get after several years in France. So we're not talking about new arrivals here. And it also seems that it doesn't apply to Brits who already have their post-Brexit residency cards. So there's quite a few exemptions, but some kind of language test is coming. Yes, and we'll have all the details as they emerge on our website. Jen, there's been talk of this new immigration bill being put forward basically since Macron was re-elected, but there are reasons why this is happening now, are there not? Immigration has been a hot-button issue for the past few weeks because of the tragic murder of a 12-year-old girl. Her name was Lola, and the chief suspect is an Algerian woman who overstayed a student visa and was living in France even though she had received an order to leave French territory, or an OQTF, as Emma said. So this was seized on by politicians on the right and far right as an example of failed immigration policy. And there was even a far right rally with placards showing Lola's face until her parents actually begged people to stop politicizing their daughter's death. But all of that to say, uh, the topic of the poorly executed orders to leave the country um, have become more prominent in public discussion in France. And as Emma mentioned before, they'll likely be one of the components of Macron's government's uh, new immigration law. Emma, just to round this subject off, just give us some context about immigration in France. What are the, the main numbers? Well, in total, about 10% of the population in France, that's roughly 6 million people, are foreign. And that includes everybody from brand new arrivals to people who've been here since they were children and who have also obtained French nationality. It includes EU and non-EU citizens, it includes students, includes people who are just here for a short time, people who are settled here, people who are working, retirees. And the data is actually, it's sort of extrapolated census data, so it does include people who are here legally and illegally. Overall, we see about 250,000 new arrivals a year. And of course, people also leave and some French people immigrate. But overall, migration has been seeing a a slight but steady increase year on year since 2000. And of the people who come, overwhelmingly, they are young people and they come here to work. But the ones who probably get the most publicity are asylum seekers. They represent roughly a third of those arrivals. About 90,000 people per year are asylum seekers. France actually has the third highest number of asylum requests per year in Europe. It's behind Germany and Spain, but it's way ahead of the UK, which gets about half the number of asylum requests that France does. Okay, I'm going to bring John back in now, who joins us again on the line from Normandy. I asked John just how important this bill is to Macron and his government. Yeah, I think I think it is important. I mean, it, it's it's a typically Macronist uh, construction in a sense. It's trying to be one thing and the other thing at the same time. 
it's trying to clamp down, and reasonably enough, maybe on illegal immigration, and it's trying to clamp down on those who come and stay, overstay their welcome and don't go when they're told to go. But then there are things in there which kind of reach out to immigrants as well, suggesting that France does need migrants in certain trades and metiers and therefore should encourage them to come if they're able to offer skills or willing to do work which French people are not willing to do. So he's, he's, it's a balancing act. He'll be attacked, is being attacked from both sides. He has to be seen to be doing something. I mean, you know, you, if you read the British media, you have the sense that every migrant that comes to France illegally makes his way to Calais or, or Dunkirk and tries to go to Britain, which is not at all the case. You know, there are many, many more illegal immigrants come into France every year than even cross the channel now in these large numbers that are crossing the channel. And they're people who come from French-speaking countries. They're people who have connections in France, uh, who have uh, family or links here who think they can work here. You know, you don't have to be, I think, a full national member or racist in your views to believe that the country cannot have completely open borders, cannot completely reduce all its defences against illegal immigration. So this has been tried before, the kind of balance that Macron's trying whether it will make a huge amount of difference, I don't know. It's very difficult to stop people coming in. It's very difficult for legal reasons to get people out when they're here because if the country they come from won't accept them, it is quite difficult to get the French courts to send them, well, nowhere. I mean, the British are trying to send people to Rwanda or all sorts of places, but it is legally a nightmare in France as it is in Britain. John, just finally, Macron government has been accused quite regularly over the years of drifting to the right, you know, treading on the turf of the far right. Is this another case with immigration or is it does he have no choice, really? Otherwise, he gets accused of being lax on immigration. He's in a difficult position, is he not? It's the most awkward one for him, I think, of all. I mean, you know, everything with him is is sort of tried to be a balance and try to suggest that there is a way between the kind of state interventionism of the left and between the intolerance and anti-European nationalist attitudes on, on the right. But immigration is one where it's difficult for him to draw a line which is kind of consistent, coherent, seems to be working and isn't attacked from both sides, which I'm sure it will be on this occasion. Especially the right has been very angered by his suggestion that there are there are immigrants that you can encourage to come who could contribute to, to French life and the, the French economy, which is obviously the case. You know, although France has, what, 7% unemployment at the moment, there are a lot of industries, especially entertainment industries, restaurant industry, which find it very, very difficult to fill the jobs they have. But that's not what a lot of people want to hear. Interesting. Thanks, John, for joining us on the line from Normandy. Now, each week on Talking France, we like to get stuck into some issues that really affect readers. And one of them is, as ever, travel. Such a huge topic for readers in France and our listeners abroad. Emma, you've been writing a lot about travel recently because there are some changes ahead that could really affect people travelling to and from France the letters EES, do they mean anything to you? Can you explain what they are and what this means for people travelling to and from France in the future? Yes, so this is an EU thing. It's not just France, but it does have particular impact in France. It is the entry and exit system, known as EES, because we love an acronym here in the EU. And it's basically a new way of checking passports at the EU's external borders. So it wouldn't apply on trips between France and Spain, for example, when you're within the EU. But if you're entering or exit France from a non-EU country, so if you were flying in to Paris from the US or if you were taking the ferry over from the UK, this would apply to you. It doesn't actually change the rules on travel, but it's just a tighter way of checking passports. You'll need to provide biometric information, such as fingerprints, and it also tightens up control of the 90-day rule. So for non-EU citizens uh, who don't have a visa or a residency permit, 
aren't usually able to stay longer than 90 days in every 180. That's already the rule. It's already in place. But at the moment, checking it is a little bit hit and miss. The EES system provides automated passport control gates that check your passport, check your biometrics and also calculate your 90 days. So overstaying is going to be pretty much impossible under this. And it's for this reason that non-EU citizens who are residents of France, like us, or who have a French visa, won't be able to use these new automated passport gates because they will automatically log you as a tourist. And if you stay more than 90 days, they will flag you as an immigration overseer, which you don't want. So essentially, it means that people like me and Jen will need to remember to seek out manned passport control booths so that we can show both our passports and our residency cards every time we enter or exit France. Okay, so this is the EU Schengen Area External Borders. What about the UK? Well, I don't know if you remember, but the UK is no longer in the EU because there was a thing called Brexit. So what this means is that the France-UK border is an external border, so this applies. And it's a particular issue on the French-British border for two reasons. Firstly, just because it's a really busy border. There is a lot of traffic across that about every year. There's about 60 million passengers between France and the UK every year. That's just passengers, that's not freight. Taking planes, Eurostar, ferry, channel tunnel. And the other reason that this particularly affects the UK-France border is the Le Touquet agreement, which means that French passport control takes place in the UK. So if you get the Eurostar from London, St Pancras, there are French passport officers checking your passport there. If you're in the port of Dover, in the port of Folkestone. And we kind of saw over the summer that even a really slight increase in processing times at these ports can lead to huge queues. You probably remember those poor drivers who were stuck at Dover for six hours at the start of the summer holidays. EES is a stricter passport check and it just requires more information so you have to give this facial scan, fingerprints. Now at airports this won't be a massive change because passengers are already on foot and go through these um, passport scanning gates but when you've got people travelling by car as you have at Dover and Folkestone people getting on the car ferry this could represent a huge increase in processing time if people have to get out of their car and give fingerprints for everybody in the the car and the, the port bosses at Dover have already said they're pretty worried about this. Yes we actually spoke to the head of the port of Dover, they are incredibly worried about how this is going to be implemented and what it's going to mean for them. They're really in the dark about it. They're worried about just persistent queues stretching through Kent countryside once this is in place, Emma. Yeah, absolutely. We spoke to uh, Doug Bannister, who's the head of the port of Dover, and what he was saying basically is that essentially they, they don't know how this is going to work in practice yet, and what he said is that he is expecting an invitation to France. So that was pretty much all they knew about it. Um, I've spent the, the last week asking this question to lots of different people. The European Commission said that this is down to individual member states to decide whether they actually install these new automated passport gates at their border. So in this case, that means France. So we asked the French about it and they said yes, that it's their decision that they're going to take and they just said that they're in discussions between British and French officials and that is presumably why our Mr Bannister is hoping for an invitation to France at some point. Yeah, I mean, basically the big question still is, is this going to go ahead? And if it does... We will have all the updates on our website and what it means for you as travellers into France. And just before we go, we on Talking France never want to miss an opportunity to include some recommendations for listeners. Emma, Jen, it's autumn, winter, plenty of stuff to do in France. 
What are you recommending? Yeah, it's getting uh, getting colder. I had my first van show of the season this week, so I'm feeling wintry. Uh, I'm going to recommend the Fête des Lumières, which is the, the Festival of Lights down in Lyon. It takes place between December 8th and 12th, and it's a really nice festival. The whole town is lit up with these amazing light displays. Some of them are synced music as well. They're, they're really spectacular. So you basically you just go, you wander around, you have a hot wine, maybe you have some chestnuts, you enjoy these beautiful light displays, and then you're in Lyon, which is the gastronomic capital of France. So I would strongly suggest going out for dinner after that. Yeah, I've been writing about the Fête de Lumière every December for years. I've sworn that I've got to go one year. I've got to make it. It really does look fantastic from when you see the pictures. Jen, what about you? So I thought about recommending a Christmas market like the one in Strasbourg or Colmar. Um, and those are definitely great, but I'm actually going to go with a light festival as well. So this one is called the Festival des Lanternes and it's in Montauban, which is near Toulouse. And it's actually not French in origin. Um, it depicts traditional scenes of Chinese life. And it's the fifth edition of the festival. And last year it drew over 400,000 visitors. It's one of the largest lantern festivals outside of East Asia. And it just looks like it's going to be absolutely amazing. They're basically recreating the Yangtze River along the Tarn River, and there's going to be all these huge floats and mythical animals and Chinese monuments. The tickets are um, between 17 to 19 euro, uh, but there is reduced pricing for students and children, uh, and it really seems like a great opportunity to enjoy winter, but also to do something a little bit different than traditional French culture. Yeah, sounds absolutely fantastic. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. Remember, if you have any feedback or suggestions, then email us at news at the local.fr. Our podcast is free, but it's only possible thanks to readers becoming members of the local France. If you like what you're listening to, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to Talking France, or just recommend us to friends and family. Thanks to you all for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.